Hey everybody, it's Moscow here, and before we get started with today's show, I just wanted to remind you all that a great way to support the Brewing Network is by shopping on Amazon. Just go to thebrewingnetwork.com and click on the Amazon link and then do all your shopping as normal. You won't even know we're there, but Amazon gives us a little cut of everything you buy, and it goes a long way to helping keep the lights on around here. So many of you are already doing it, and for that we offer our sincere thanks. Keep it up, and if you're not doing it, a pox on you and everyone in your family. Thanks in advance. Enjoy the show. The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. All right, it is that time again. It's the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Your host, Jay Goodwin, here with Moscow, Hello. a.k.a. Scott. How's it going, Scott? It's going good, man. God, my mouth is like uh, still still uh, ablaze from the sip of uh, Sour Tooth that I just had. You're gingery? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. Yeah, we have a new, uh, new batch of Sour Tooth Tiger, our ginger sour beer, heavy on the ginger for sure. You know, we like to have a lot of our beers be kind of more in balance but i'd say this is on the more extreme end we we really like a powerful ginger and it's like once you go into an ingredient like ginger it's you know you either like it or you don't so we just turned it up to 11 but yeah yeah it, it is aggressively ginger <laughs> and and definitely more acidic than last year last year's was really gingery too but it mm-hmm. wasn't quite as acidic and in keeping with the pattern i'm seeing more more a more acidic on pretty much the backbone of, of all the beers i've been having from you so far yeah, I'd say, you know, there's there's a little bit of a drift there, but, uh, you know, just like, you know, all of our experiments, we, we try them out, and then we kind of evaluate where they are six, nine, 12 months down the line. and uh, But, we're, you know, we're happy with uh, the sourness and the ginger combination of this. Um, someone who probably wouldn't be happy with this is Bevo, joining mm-hmm. us from behind the glass. How's it going, Bevo? Hello. Ooh. Okay, okay. she was ready hot. for that one. Coming in hot? Yep. Yeah. Oh, and her mic was turned up, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, I want to kind of condense the top of the show because we're actually going to squeeze in uh, our guest into the first hour or second hour, depending on how we ch- how Scott chops us up. But uh, join in. Uh, feel free. Contact us. 888-401-BEER. Join us in the chat. Send us an email for feedback. Watch us on thebrewingnetwork.com slash TV. Uh, subscribe on iTunes. Rate us. You know, I looked it up today. We have uh, 21 reviews, and every single one is five stars. Nice. Yeah, pretty crazy. So uh, so you guys know 21 people. Yeah. Exactly. My mom knows 21 people. <laughs> but, you know, keep up the, the feedback. You know, we read the reviews and, and take them seriously. So uh, thank you for those. And all your questions tonight will be brought to, you, brought to us and you and everyone by sourbeerblog.com. All right. You know what? Without any further ado, I want to get to our guest who does not require an introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. So uh, he's one of the most heavily awarded brewers in history. He's twice the Small Brew Pub Brewer of the Year, the Small Brewery Brewer of the Year. That's all at GABF. And then at World Beer Cup, World Champion Small Brewery and Brewer of the Year. He's got more medals than Flavor Flav does in his teeth. 
He's Tommy Arthur of the Lost Abbey. How's it going, Tommy? It's a hell of an introduction, man. Thank you. <laughs> I worked all day on that. Good. Thank you. It's funny. I asked uh, Jay when I heard you were coming on. I was like, oh, great. So are we going to have beer? And Jay was like, oh. mm, no. And I was like, really? Why not? He's like, because it's Tommy, man. It's like I didn't. I kind of asked once and I didn't want to, you know, bug him because it's Tommy. I totally whiffed on that. I apologize. No, no. You're, you're a big get. And, you know, really, while we have immense respect for your beer and obviously, you know, so do the, the judges at GBF and World Beer Cup. Uh, the real reason we have you here today is to share some of your knowledge because, I mean, let's face it, you're one of the OGs of the craft beer sour scene from the beginning. So, you know, I, I'll just start off rapid fire with some of the questions. Um, I'm wondering, what was the sour beer scene like when you started making it? And then how did you find out how to make this stuff in the first place? So produced my first intentional sour beer back in probably 1998, 1999, when I was working at Pittsburgh in Solana Beach. Um, I was a huge lover of Rodenbach and had acquired a dissertation that was written on the methodologies of production for Rodenbach. Mm. Um, and I loved that, that you could produce sour beer a la Rodenbach with a mixed fermentation, stainless steel, and wood-based that wasn't spontaneously fermented and um, so we tackled um, that sort of style of beer which was to ferment with Saccharomyces and then age in wood barrels and inoculate in the wood barrels and ultimately that first beer that we released was our Cuvée de Tommy um, in 1999 and that sort of set the stage for this can be done to make sour beer outside of Belgium, Belgian uh, production methodologies, you know, the, the, the notion of lambic itself, um, and really just sort of emboldened us to, to take that take that charge. Um, at the very same time that we were working on our cuvee, um, Vinny was working on Temptation up at Russian River with a very similar process, and we chatted at length about um, how we were doing things and how they were doing things, and, you know, just over the years really came to understand that we were developing something that was very American um, and not, you know, specifically Belgian in its nature, and, uh, you know, continue to look at it from that angle and see what, what else was possible. It's been pretty cool to be a part of it, for sure. Yeah, it's so awesome. It, you know, I'm a big uh, baseball fan. And that sort of reminds me of, like, when the Giants and the Dodgers moved from New York to the West Coast. And it was just a big sea change in professional sports. And to see and hear about these two giants of beer, you know, changing course and going from, hey, we know how to make, you know, hoppy beer and a bunch of different styles to, you know, we're going to start tackling this, the most complex fermentation pretty much in the world. That that must have been just kind of a, a radical time. How, how much did those conversations with Vinny help, you know, steer you in the right direction and steer his program in the right direction? What were you guys kind of focused on troubleshooting? Well, I mean, I think that the craziest thing at that point is, is that I don't think either one of us had actually been to Belgium. Um, I think, you know, we'd done a pretty good job of drinking our way through Belgian beer <laughs> land. Um, we had both met Peter Bruchart, obviously, at that point from New Belgium and had conversations um, about the possibilities and sort of, you know, what it meant to work with mixed fermentations because Peter had come from Rodenbach. Um, you know, I think there was just a, a real lack of data and a, and, and a real true sense of this is how you have to do it. And so we attacked it from different angles. I mean, clearly Vinny chose the, I want to use the Chardonnay barrels and I want to use wine and started that path. And our cuvee started out with, you know, mostly used bourbon barrels. Um, but we, we really did end up in a similar direction, which was, 
you know, very Brett forward beers with a little bit of back acid to them um, and, a, and a true sense of, of barrel quality and character that you wouldn't have found in a Belgian beer at that point. And it was really cool to see people's eyes be sort of awakened to a whole different ability um, with respect to acid and mixed cultures and even, you know, just, um, you know, sour bacteria, you know, fermentations, uh, you know, with wood being, uh, you know, on board. Absolutely. And it must have been amazing to see how much people's opinions of those beers changed over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. When you talk about uh, Cuvée de Tommy or even uh, a beer like Red Poppy, can you chat a little about how those beers started as kind of base beers that you're already making, you know, clean fermentations? And then how do you describe the process of maybe, you know, for a, a brewer listening out there, maybe he's working at, uh, you know, a pub and he wants to start a sour beer program. He's thinking, oh, you know, my fill in the blank beer might make a sour beer, a nice sour beer also. What are kind of the steps you took from bringing your clean beers into the sour beer program and maybe some some uh, pitfalls you encountered along the way? So I want to tell two stories and then I want to talk about something that we don't currently do. Um, the very first thing about making sour beer that, that really empowered us was meeting Michael Jackson and having him claim that, you know, Cuvée was sort of like Rodenbach on steroids. And so to have someone who had a real old world sensibility of what sour beer was from, from Europe and Belgium specifically saying that this was an American version that was worthy of your attention was pretty, pretty badass to be, wow. you know, to be, to be blunt. Um, in 2006, we traveled to Europe with some of our beers on the famous Brett Pack sort of, you know, tour. And we walked into Cantillon and Jean, Jean Wa, um, the, you know, the, the, the original brewer from Cantillon, um, Jean, Jean's father, uh, tasted cuvee and couldn't spit it out fast enough because it had too much wood <laughs> character for his liking. And in his world, wood and sour equated something completely, completely different. So, uh, absolutely you know worlds clashing at the point where we really kind of got rolling with this stuff so how did we do it well you know we looked at a lot of the i, I specifically looked at a lot of the rodenbach stuff which said you know this is how they go through a mixed fermentation in-house you take these cultures you have a saccharomyces basis you have lactic acid producers and this is what you can end up with after you blend them at you know nine months or two years and different tanks and all this jazz but you look at the sort of the dexterness work nature of what Lambic starts with in a, in a highly dextrin work and we kind of blended the two things together. We took sort of a, a base fermentation, left a lot of residual sugar behind um, for some of those beers. They probably were too sugary um, to be truly served or, or sent out the door but as they hit the, the barrel they had a lot of available sort of sugar and, and energy to those mixed cultures and those mixed cultures found a home. So uh, you know, it was a, it's seemingly a very simple process in that you just you create a, a base beer in stainless steel and you and then you add all the stuff at the oak. Um, it allows you to keep everything very separate and and it worked for us. You know, at at a, at a great arm's length. The one thing that I find that's most interesting today that we're currently not participating in that I would like to um, sort of delve back into and see how we could we could work with it is this sense of some kettle sour and the notion of acidifying the wort at the kettle and then you know taking it through boil heat x into the tank fermenting it with with a, a standard uh you know a saccharomyces strain and then going out to the barrel and what sort of those flavors would be available to us 
um, in that range. And I, we haven't gotten there yet because we're, we're making so many things that we love um, with the hybrid, you know, the hybrid sense of stainless fermentation without acidifying. But I think there's some real cool work that could be done in, in that regard, which is to say, let's start with an acidified basis and move it out here. And then let's play back to the what cultures could really, you know, really take that beer to a whole different place. Um, as much as I love these kettle sours that are being made, they're very hollow. They have a very one-dimensional sort of lactic nature to them. And I'd love to figure out how to how to start there and use that as a departure. Yeah, that's an awesome commentary. And I was wondering, you know, sort of what your overall thoughts were on the kettle souring trend. You know, on some of our last shows, we've had uh, some of the, the excellent kettle sour brewers who have won awards for their sour beer that are kettle soured. And I think the main takeaway we got from them is, you know, this is a, a tool in the tool shed, to borrow a term, that, you yep. know, it's 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 a way to introduce acid. But as you said, maybe it's hollow or we've heard it described as one note or a little bit lacking in um, depth. Com- depth and complexity. So, Poopy. yeah. Oh, yeah. That, in Poopy, the, in, is that in, the wor- <laughs> in the worst case, there are. Yeah. And th- that's the other thing. Navigate, just like any other sour beer, you know, you are dealing with some off flavors. So I think yeah. those are all good things to to kind of consider. Um, and, you know, just thinking of off flavors, I'm wondering, you know, you've been making sour beer now, I mean, by my count over 15 years, what's with your, with your experience and, and the strains and uh, mixed cultures you deal with, what's the most common off flavor you encounter and how do you deal with that or troubleshoot it? And when you encounter that off flavor, do you pull a Jean senior and spit it back out all over the table? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, like most sour beer producers, we we can be prone to making acetone um, if if we don't be you know if we don't behave or if we don't have some things that that are in spec. Um, I think we've gotten pretty good at removing a pretty good amount of that from our production. Um, you know, if we have 50 oak barrels that we're using to make red poppy, um, you know, maybe in the past 10 of them might have had an acetic note to them, and today maybe only three do. Um, we've always blended to. We've always blended to flavor and never blended to gallon totals, which basically states that if we filled 50 barrels, we wouldn't necessarily expect to refill and use all 50 barrels just to make some number um, to pay for things. So the blending process is key. Um, the ability to blend really boils down to our our sensory ability in the lab to discern different things. And myself, along with Gwen Conley, our quality assurance director, um, and then random people over the years, our brewers, um, seller people have been invited into that process um, because everybody brings different strengths and, and capabilities. Uh, in the in the in the in the sort of the the, the big picture here, um, we at least for my taste buds, we produce a, a little bit more elevated level of sulfur than I think other people do. I'm not quite sure why that is, but I'm particularly sensitive to sulfur, and so when I'm tasting barrels, uh, oftentimes when we sample barrels. I get what I call a tennis ball or a rubber note, um, mm. sort of an autolytic sulfur sort of basis. I think it's a very interesting aromatic component. I don't think it uh, overly flavors the beer, but if you think about some of the beers in Burton on Trent and some of those Cascales that have that really minerality to them, um, you know, those those always add interest. Uh, so I'm always looking at our beer from that that sulfur component. Um, it, it just it. I think in the beer, it's a really cool thing at too high of a level. I think it obviously can be really farty and, and ugly. Gotcha. It's great to get that perspective of, you know, like I said, your experience over a long period of time and 
what you've encountered and how you've overcome it. Um, I'm, I'm going to try one more question, then we'll get to a quick break. Um, you know, speaking of your experience, I'm wondering, you know, I've heard and read a lot about your initial cultures and, uh, you know, how you've developed them and, you know, you work at and with uh, White Labs. Um, I'm wondering, for all this time, you know, I, I we're at the Rare Barrel, we've been open for two years and, you know, we're maintaining our cultures and we think we're doing a good job. But for all those brewers out there who have started a sour beer program and they like their mixed culture or they like their Brett, what what are your advice or tips and tricks for people to maintain those cultures over a long period of time? And, you know, how do you deal with drift and, you know, bacteria out, out competing yeast? Just problems like yeah. that. How have you done it? Um, you know, a couple different things that come up. The first is is that when we started, a lot of a lot of our interest in the beer was created by Brett cultures alone, um, and not as much lactic acid production in that regard. We definitely got some acetic. Um, you know, over the years, we have worked to selectively culture from each round of beers, whether it's Red Poppy, um, Cable Car, Duck Duck, Cuvée. We we try to keep some of those cultures within the same boundaries, meaning that Red Poppy makes Red Poppy. Um, and some of the Veritas beers and things like Cable Car make yellow, blonde, sour. Cuvée tends to have its own set of cultures. We've worked to bring in new, um, add some new Brett strains and some other pieces. There's absolutely drift, I can promise you that. Um, but the one place that you really can keep drift from being uh, too big of a constituent is in the blending process and legitimately in the sampling process. If it find out that that you've got too many people that all perceive the same flavor, your ability to to blend that off or to bring, um, you know, parts and pieces of other barrels forward is is pretty pretty low. And so I like our panel. I like the notion of a panel. Um, no one person is absolutely in control of the panel. Um, although we certainly have a, a predicated direction that we want to get to and finish at, um, but everyone's allowed to sort of give input. Um, I will tell you that over the years we have had drift in terms of our cultures. We're not on the absolute original cultures from Solana Beach here. We constantly are adding to them um, with the hope of improving the beer, but at the same time not getting too far away. I think the, 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 if there's one takeaway from where I sit, it's that you can't expect to use the same cultures for 10 years and not have to add in and subtract from them um, because even if you're doing selective culturing, you're going to find out pretty quickly that, that things don't behave. And even if you think you can buy a set of barrels and use them for 10 years, there's there's issues with barrel management as well. Right. So to, so to basically sum up, you know, you, you are trying to control the drift, but you accept that there is some level of drift and you correct that in the blending process. We definitely, we definitely use the blending process to maintain the character of the beer and, and sort of assert the beer the way we want it to. We also know that if you fill 50 to 80 barrels, that getting there every year isn't going to be the same process. But if you have a sense of, you know, we don't want too much acetic, we can't have too much live brett, we don't want over, you know, we don't want an overarching pH. There's plenty of ways to, to deal with it, um, but you got to have a premise. So our framboise, the the most bombastic fruit beer that we make, it's very different than our cuvee, and it's not as as you know fruit forward as as things. Um, you know, the red poppy is certainly not as fruit forward as that, but every beer needs to have its own basis and sort of its own goal line. And if you can create that within within the context of what you're trying to do, I think it's very easy to throw things out or to add or subtract, you know, which ones make the cut. Gotcha. Well, I think uh, what I'd like to do is take a quick break. But when we get back, maybe get into some of those specific beers that you've mentioned uh, in your sour program. Uh, so if you can hang on, Tommy, we'll be uh, right back here on the Sour Hour. 
Ken Grossman of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company says making great beer is hard. Making the same great beer every day is harder. Brewers Publications announces its latest release for breweries of any type and size. Quality Management, an essential guide for brewers by Mary Pelletieri. Proper quality management for small, regional, and national breweries is critical. Whether you are an established business or brand new, learn the best ways to create and manage a quality system in your brewery. This book will guide you in developing a comprehensive program that will grow with your brewery, help ensure quality processes in the brewery, and continue providing great beer for your fans. Quality management for breweries is critical for continued success. This guidebook teaches you to integrate quality management in every level of the operation. It will guide you in developing a comprehensive program to ensure quality processes in your brewery. Quality management, an essential guide for brewers, now available from Brewers Publications. Learn more at brewerspublications.com. Let me E-I-E-I-E-I-O Call me naughty 
story I'm about to tell. Began a few years back, I was rap when I shot with a stack to the back he made. I walked in the room that I was doing by the time I came in through the dose. Had studio lights, edible tights, and cage in the middle of the floor. It was a fortress of sexual courses. For this, I was glad my pistol had a full clip. By the end of the day, my whole body was drained. If you wanted to smack, I'ma couldn't give up a trip. And I looked at her as a Navy SEAL. She had me hung from my tongue on the chandelier sprung for the year she even made me scream. Graduated to these tunes, banging ladies on a daily week after week. Cause I know you're home on my cross, no, there's no other life. I'ma look at me as an incredible freak. back how appropriate to get the uh that read from rudy when we're just talking about his beer rodenbach and that beer comes up a lot it turns a lot of people into sour fiends it's a standard you know uh we're back it's the sour hour uh want to get to a thank you to a few of our sponsors before we get back to tommy um we have an important message from the american homebrewers association very important you know uh, organization you know because it's .org. That's how you know it's an organization. Homebrewersassociation.org. They uh, they want you to give the gift of the AHA this year. They want you to sign up. Well, what you should do is sign up through the Brewing Network by clicking on the link on the right side of the website, and you'll receive a free copy of Modern Homebrew Recipes from Gordon Strong. I hear that's a great book. Yes. I've heard nothing but a, a great things. Yeah, he's making some good beers. When you enter the coupon code MODERN at checkout, MODERN. Remember that. Yeah, it's you then you you're gonna get benefits like pub discount programs, Imergy magazine, and access to the very popular AHA forum on homebrewersassociation.org. It's it's inconceivable to me that someone who is listening to this show is not a member of the AHA. I know. Well, right? What are you doing if you're not? Please. Uh, very t- important. Tommy, were you ever a member of the AHA? Way back in the day when I was when I before I even became a professional brewer, yes. I, I was a card carrying member of not the NRA. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was an HA member. Awesome. So we uh, we teased it a little bit before the break, but I wanted to get into some of your specific beers. We touched on uh, Cuvée de Tommy, I feel like before before the break. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and we've actually uh, solicited for some questions for you and uh, a few uh, emails and uh, Facebook posts uh, surrounded the status of a beer. That I believe is called Yellow Bus, and then something in reference to a peach tree that's related yeah. to it. Yeah, absolutely. Can you update uh, us on that? Uh, the status of that beer, and then also the tree. 
the tree, I, I, I wish I could tell you good news about the tree. We have no idea what variety of peaches those were, other than they were some sort of a white heirloom peach. And to this day, they um, they haunt us because the tree was um, you know, owned by a customer, you know, customer friend patron uh, who became an employee. Um, the tree actually produced fruit one year, about 30, 40 pounds. We racked the beer into a, a, a plastic 55-gallon drum food grade. Um, it was already sour. We fruited the beer for about three months. Uh, we cased up the 20, 20 cases or so of the beer, um, never released it to the public, let it kind of ride out of here just generally to friends and people. And the legend of Yellow Bus was developed because the beer was just incredible. I mean, it's just an amazing white peach fruit beer. And we tried to replicate that sort of the next year, and the tree only produced half as much fruit and in the process died. Um, mm. And so there was no ability to graft it, move it over otherwise. So um, it's kind of on my long-term sort of basis to, to figure out what exactly that peach was. I assume that we could potentially go get it sort of reverse engineered. There's about a case of the beer left that I know of, at least that I control. So don't call me and email me and ask me that you've been wanting to taste it forever <laughs> in the world because I'm not going there. Um, it was a happy accident in a, in a really, really good, positive way. Uh, I wish, I truly wish that the tree hadn't died uh, or that we knew what it was so that we could recreate it. The, the level of intensity and um, sort of the veracity that people have for that beer that have never tasted it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those le legitimate whales of whales that people just wish they would have had a chance to come across. Well, Scott and I will edit out the fact that you still have a few bottles left. Don't yeah, worry. don't worry about it. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you about a few more uh, specific beers. Um, the Frambois de Amorosa. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that beer? And then just especially the fruit character, because I think that's a beautiful beer. And you guys do a great job of getting translating the fruit into this kind of preserved beer, the sour beer. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, I think the coolest thing about the Frambois beer is, is, at least for me, is the difficulty of making a great raspberry beer. Um, and when I was getting into the business back in sort of when I was drinking and then before I got into it, you know, one of my first sort of real raspberry beers was Pete's, Pete's Wicked Raspberry or whatever their winter winter beer was. But, um, you know, you, you had New Belgium with their Frambois. You had a lot of people making Frambois-style beers on a brown base. Um, and I don't know if that was sort of the notion of, you know, sort of the Leafmans and the, and the Gutenbonds and things of the world. But, you know, we we definitely tackled a, a raspberry beer without going down the path of yellow sour lambic style. And I don't know if some of the success in that beer is specifically attributed to the base and some of the caramel fractions. But that starts out as our lost and found Abbey Ale. And so that's an eight and a half percent alcohol Abbey abbey beer um stainless steel fermentation west Mala yeast and then we rack it into oak barrels um add some raspberries to the barrels and then it spends about nine months to a year um you know kind of just doing its thing and uh i i think more than anything i i love the I, I love that jammy note that you speak of you know sort of that sense of wow this thing is is really ripe mm -hmm. um and and the the difficulty of balancing the acid to the fruit is is what i think makes that beer very very successful Gotcha. And then I've also heard, and you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on this, but is there any additional fruit added at like in the in the bottling phase of this beer? Yeah, most of our fruit beers have some sense of a concentrate that we add. Um, you know, it's not it's not widely a secret. It's also not widely kind of discussed as to how we do it. But the the reality is is that we have found 
for a lot of our fruit beers that the adding and sort of metering at the end is a very important sort of way to go about getting the flavor to match the intensity. Um, and unfortunately, over the years with raspberries specifically, um, the cherries have been much more stable. The raspberries have been, um, you know, far more unpredictable in terms of their, their acidity, their sugar levels and things like that. And, you know, one of the things that, that I've seen out of the Belgian beer specifically is, um, you know, Dre Fontaine's done some of their Charbique stuff and, and they have very, very different, you know, batch over batch. And even some of the raspberries, you know, just the level of acid to sugar at picking or when those berries go, you know, when that fruit goes into the barrels really does control the final flavor. Um, and how you deal with that's a big part of the process for us. Gotcha. And just while I'm on the subject of things that are happening at bottling, you know, I know you guys have changed your process on the bottle conditioning front for the brewers who, you know, may be just starting their sour program and maybe they have beer in barrels, but they're wondering how the heck am I going to bottle this beer? Can you just explain maybe some of the, the improvements you've made over the years in your bottle conditioning and just some, some takeaways for, for the younger sour beer brewers? Yeah, like a lot of young brewers, we made a lot of assumptions back in the day. We didn't have the technology. Um, you know, the, there's two two big pitfalls that we saw. One is is that bourbon barrel beers tend to pick up a lot more alcohol than we thought. So where we thought we were in the 12, 12.5% range, we were often working up above 14.5, and getting beer to re-ferment at 14.5 is very difficult. Wow. Um, you know, and then at the, at the, at the sour side of things, um, pH is a huge concern, and specifically pH and alcohol. So our cuvee has always been sort of problematic in that it's got a high a high alcohol level, you know, plus 11%, and a low pH, you know, under 3.5. And those two things working in concert never work well. I always told people if you didn't have access to the equipment, um, you know, we went out and bought a Gehalt meter so we knew exactly how much uh, starting CO2 we had. Um, Zaman Nagels don't work below one-something, so... They're almost worthless at that point. Um, and we went out and got an alkalizer, which gave us some real good residual sugar numbers as well. But without any of that information, I always felt that a very active Brett culture in the beer itself was probably your best bet um, for, for some sense of success because Brett, Brett's pretty voracious. Um, it's not the single guarantee, you know, guarantor that you're going to be successful, um, but it, it doesn't mind alcohol and it doesn't mind pH as much. So, you know, having a, an active Brett culture was something that, that definitely in the early days at Pizza Port worked out really well. When we got here, um, our first few batches did not have as high of a level of Brett sort of on board, and we had to work around that. And, you know, so there was a wine yeast, champagne yeast kind of basis, um, and, and all that can be, you know, kind of looked at. But, you know, the answer is very simply is that sour beer is quite unpredictable, and certainly strong sour beer is one of the worst places to try to live because it's incredibly unpredictable. Getting beer to re-ferment, you know, beer that's as high as like 14 or over 14 is very difficult, but it's not impossible. No, we actually have had some, we've had some pretty good luck in the past few years. Um, a lot of our bourbon barrel stuff from Angel Share and Narsanis and Older Viscosity and just other track, track beers and things we've done have all lived north of 13 and a half. And we have found a pretty good sweet spot in there. I will tell you that when we cleared 15, 15 and a half, we definitely found that even that process didn't didn't work so much anymore. So uh, the bulk of what we do that's bourbon barrel or, or spirit barrel aged, we're working to, to be under 14 and a half, but our confidence to take that beer to package is pretty good. Um, anything north of that, we tend to get a little bit shy on. 
I think that's excellent advice. And thanks for sharing your experience with that, Tommy. It can, it can be scary. You know, you work all this time to, you know, curate this beer over months and years. And if it's your first sour beer, the last thing you want is to make that fatal mistake at packaging at the last moment after all this hard work and you're blending and, you know, you're yeah. du- maybe dumping some barrels that you didn't like it. It's that last pro- that last step is, is so important. So I appreciate you, you know, school. Yeah, we, all we always struggle with the, how much of a bench top could you, how much of a bench top trial could you do to get, you know, real results from. And I've always felt that, you know, even though you're going to dump a barrel, you might be able to catch some of that, but you know, if you're dumping a barrel, cause it's truly acetic and it's got a, you know, a value that doesn't line up with what you actually blended in the tank. You know, you could try to re-ferment that in, a, in, a, in an environment and see what you get, but I doubt it's going to actually mimic what, what the final process is. And I've seen a lot of brewers take um, barrel beer and not try to re-ferment it because of the simplicity of, you know, gassing it and going and, and being more predictable that way. Um, you know, for us, there's just something about that, truly about that that, that cork-finished beer that has a real sense of re-fermentation to it that if we can get it right, it, it really does get things right in the bottle. Yeah, it's distinctive and distinctively Lost Abbey, and it turns out beautiful beer, just amazing stuff. Um, and speaking of beautiful beer, I feel like uh, the beer we got asked about the most is Duck Duck Goose. Yep. And so I'd like to just touch on that beer for a little bit, maybe focusing on the fermentation and blending aspect of that. You know, one of the, one of the best beers, I think, in the world. I appreciate it. We've done it twice now. First release was in 2009. Um, I feel like we did about 300 cases at that point. That beer was a blend of one and two and three year old um, different oak aged beers. Um, we run in house anywhere from two to four different blonde based beers, some being um, lager beer that gets re fermented, some being our beer to guard, and then some that what we call a wheat lager, which would be more of a traditional, um, a truly traditional sort of lambic based. You know, thirty percent unmalted wheat, two row, and um, you know what what little bit of hops would go into something like that. We run those, you know, at a minimum. That twelve month basis brings a lot of bright beer, low oak quality. The eighteen month beer that goes into it, which is sort of what we would call the two year beer, um, the, that makes up the bulk of the blend. And then there's some three-year-old beer that goes into it. It brings a little bit of a heavier acid quality, uh, maybe a little bit of some staling, uh, some funky notes that you just don't get from young beer. And those three things all blended together is what you know sort of ultimately becomes Duck Duck Goose. Uh, it has an oak edge to it that, that obviously Lambic doesn't have, but we're, we're not looking for an overly oaked beer. Um, we released it last in 2013. My original goal was to release it every three years, and we're going to try to get back on that three-year window with 2016 being the next release of it. And currently, I think the last batch we did in 2013 was about 40 different oak barrels, and we're currently sitting on over 100 right now that could go into that, but I don't think we're going to go to that level of a a total. So um, no timeline as to when, although maybe May of next year, um, but certainly next year between May and and, uh, August. All right, you heard it here first. Definitely in May of 2016, definitely 100 oak barrels of Duck Duck Goose, right? Yeah, it's going to be fun. (laughs) Um, It's a great process. I I, I think it's just phenomenal to engage that sense of new, new, middle, and old and and what that means. Um, It's a very stable beer. I love opening them, and I, I just love the story behind it. 
Just a quick uh, follow-up. You did say, you know, uh, kind of newer, middle, and old. Just a, a brief question about the old. You know, you mentioned three-year-old beer. How do you keep that beer from becoming too acidic or acetic and preventing it from getting too much oxygen exposure and, you know, having yeah. that kind of acetone or nail polish off flavor? So what we've found over the years is that we sample a lot of our yellow barrels at about a year, and we have to make decisions at a year as to what they're going to do. Maybe at a year they're in a very new barrel and they're very oaky or otherwise. Um, what needs to happen for something to be three years old is it needs to not be um, acetic at 12 to 18 months because if it's not acetic at 12 to 18 months and you don't disturb it, it should get to three years without doing that. Now, that being said, it has to be good beer. You can't just leave it around for three years and, and hope that it doesn't turn. So a lot of the stuff that we end up letting to, to that three-year level, we don't touch much. They literally kind of get put away, sort of decided that that should be something to you know hold back and, um, and, and, and not open up to the environment. We don't top them off. Uh, we don't deal with them in that regard. So uh, by just sort of leaving them alone, they tend to be, in my mind, as, as good as they can be. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, in a blend of 40 oak barrels, that might be six to eight total. Um, okay. You know, in something about 100, it might be 15. Um, it's not a huge percentage. And the goal is is that they definitely shouldn't be acetic as heck. You know, the, the they shouldn't share, you know, 15, you know, acetic bombs. So... Gotcha. I think we have a, a question from one of our listeners for Tommy. Yep, this is Mark in Medford Lake, uh, New Jersey. He says, Tommy, when uh, uh, he says he always hears when blending, uh, it's about finding the right proportions of each barrel uh, or beer to get the best blend. So he wants to know if those percentages ever leave you with a partially full barrel once their blend is completed. And then what do you do with those barrels? Do you top them off or you release them as a single beer if it's good enough? Or do you, you know, try to use all the contents of a barrel? No, that, that's a great question. We definitely don't um, drop every barrel uh, to the sense that we use. You know, we might find a barrel that we like that has a, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a, maybe we want a little of an acetic edge and we want 30 gallons or we want half a barrel um, or we want to, you know, we always talk about acetic barrels as being sort of like salt um, because they bring a salinity to, to a beer. Um, and so we, we meter in that, that basis and maybe we want 20 gallons from a 55 gallon barrel. We would either throw the rest out, we would save it for another project. Um, it really just depends upon what we're doing, but we never, we never top those barrels back off. Um, so if something was acetic, let's say, and we wanted to meter out 20 gallons, we would make a decision as to whether it, it was even a barrel worth saving. Um, but we would pull the beer out into kegs and, and have it, uh, you know, have access to it. But sometimes we might only pull out the 20 gallons that we need and dump the rest and then burn the barrel, you know, send it, send it on its merry way. But there are definitely barrels that score within our conversations. Um, sometimes they're half barrels based upon how oaky they are. Um, you know, sometimes the beer does get dumped, you know, or sometimes it gets just reserved. Um, you know, we call it the orphanage. So yeah, a whole bunch of different ways that we can deal with it. But um, never, never at here, at least, never do we empty a barrel halfway and then top it back off for longer term. What about Jay? Do you do that? We don't often find ourselves with finished beer becoming half barrel, but sometimes when we're, we do some primary sour uh, fermentations and maybe uh, Tommy will do this too with his Saccharomyces going into oak barrels, but we, we will top and, and we'll have, we have a bunch of what we call slash barrels in our brewery. So it's, you know, we're emptying the fermenter of batch 85 and 
it runs out halfway on an oak barrel and then we have batch 86 also in a fermenter so we top it off with that sometimes it's very strange combinations things you wouldn't you know necessarily think would go together but we also just have three base beers so and they're all they the base recipes build on top of each other so there's never too much of a conflict in flavor um but they are kind of the the misfit barrels of the brewery and sometimes they turn out well sometimes we end up having to dump them but the ones that do end up well we we try to learn from those and make better beer from that uh but it is certainly a concern one other thing you can do is just keg it off you know keg it off get it into stainless container that's not going to see oxygen and something that's good for a long-term storage so you have, you have some options there and i think there's you know tommy had his uh techniques and i threw a, a couple more on top of that so plenty to work with there but what about the the salt thing that you mentioned tommy you, you said that you look at as, acidic barrels like salt does that literally mean there's sodium in there that you would you'd be adding to your blend no, I mean, it just, when you when you get some of these really acetic beers and that acetone solvent note, it, it can really cause some of the taste buds to come off as almost tasting like having a saltiness to them. But if you imagine that that, that flavor might be something you want to put into the beer at a threshold or, or, you know, at a sub level, you know, if you don't have a well-seasoned steak, then the meat doesn't, you know, soda doesn't exude the way it might want to. And I, I have found over the years that one of the things that we definitely look at is having different types of acids in the beer. And so you can't just have a straight lactic note and you can't have a, a straight acetone and acetic note. And you have to have a blend of all these things, including some malics and, and other you know wine kind of acids. And figuring out how they all behave and, and where they work together is one of the, I think, the hallmarks of what our beers have. And that is, is that they don't just have one straightforward kind of, and, you know, we spoke about it in the kettle souring, you know, they don't just have a straight lactic, you know, lactobacillus or, or lactic acid producing sort of thing going on. There's multiple different types of acids. And when you get them in spec, then they, they, they work together. And if you get them out of spec, you have too much acetone, too much acetic note, you have too much vinegar, you all of a sudden, you have the wrong component. But what makes like a beer like Rodenbach, and we spoke of that earlier, is that it has sometimes, from time to time, an acetic note to it. But that solvency works in that because of the way that the caramel malt behaves and the oak and things like that. So we always look at we always look at the solvency and say we don't want the beer to exude it, and we just certainly don't want it to be a, a, a front and center. But we want to look at it as sort of a seasoning and say if it had a little bit of that or some or none. You know, does it need it or does it not eat any of it? And that's that's how we treat it, sort of like salt. Yeah, just like any seasoning, you're trying to make the base taste more like what it actually is. You know, you, you, like Tommy said with the steak or, you know, you add salt to food. It just tastes more like you believe it should taste. Totally. So that... I, I'll tell you this. One of the coolest things that, that happens in the lab when we, when we sort of look at that, that basis is we've, we kind of work towards a final blend. And then we say, if we added more of that, what would we get? And you, you almost take it over the edge. And if, sometimes if you have a really nice blend and you push five gallons more of something that is very acetic, it takes it to a whole different place. And you go, yuck, you know, wow, that's too far. You know, that would be an oversalted steak, you know. But sometimes if you if you run it right up to the edge, you might find that it be, you know, it opens up some of the other things to be better. And that, that is the blending process. The whole goal is to open the open up everything, you know. You taking a shower there, Tommy? Do I what? Are you taking a shower? Nah, somebody's blowing CO2 or air out in the bottom. <laughs> nah, gotcha. <laughs> they just, every, door, every door is closed, but yeah. You know, that's a that's a brewer. 
That's a brewer Sorry. finishing a job there. Yeah. So, you know, the last thing you do, you're blowing down the tank, wait for it to uh, clear, and then you clean it. You're almost done for the day. Yeah. So speaking of almost done for the day, let's take one quick break and then uh, get Tommy out of here with just a few short questions. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Can you hang out for one more segment? I'm good. All right. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Beer tasting games that train your palate, a brewery locator, and the brand new interactive beer style guide. These are just a few of the awesome things you'll find on craftbeer.com. The style guide is a beautiful example of technology in beer. Browse beer style families or turn on the automatic beer style finder and explore beer through color, bitterness, ABV, aroma, and flavor. It's really the coolest way to explore every beer style besides having them all in front of you. Go to craft craftbeer.com and click on beer styles to start the guide plus enjoy the rest of craftbeer.com the brewers banter blogs beer education how to host a beer tasting and the invaluable draft quality manual tons of great content that makes your beer better visit the new craftbeer.com right now and explore the website that brings you all the passion camaraderie and creativity of the craft beer community craftbeer.com celebrating the best of american beer We are back to the Sour Hour. Just a quick reminder at the top that we have better lead-in and outro music than all the other BN shows, which you should be listening <laughs> to, like The Session, Dr. Homebrew, Brewing with Style, and Brew Strong. So check those out if you don't like super cool lead-in music. Right. <laughs> if you like the same uh, Kiss riffs yes. that you've been hearing since 2007. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're starting a rivalry, but <laughs> that'll develop over time. But I think uh, enough jibber-jabber for me. I think we have a caller uh, who's got a question for Tommy. Hey, Josh. Yeah, hey. Hey, man, in Lexington, Kentucky. Correct. What's going on, man? Hey, uh, so you touched on it earlier and um, about the having problems carbonating bottles of high alcohol or low pH beer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're actually running into the same problem right now at our brewery. And I was wondering how they actually solved that problem and got past that hurdle. So, okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Tommy. Uh, so how did you solve the high-alcohol bottle conditioning problem? I guess my question back to, to Josh, it's Josh in Kentucky, right? Yep. Uh, yeah. Sort of what alcohol level are you sitting at or what what, um, what are you guys seeing? And, you know, sort well, of describe the uh, process and I can take it from there. Okay. The beer we have is like an Imperial Stout that we finished out in uh, bourbon barrels. Uh, it's about 13.2. We, we analyzed it on Antipar. Um, so we tried uh, two different yeasts to try and uh, bottle it up. We tried three different pitching rates. We did uh, one million, one and a half, and two million cells per mil in each one with uh, like three different um, amounts of uh, sugar, uh, bottling sugar, primary sugar. And uh, all of them are flat after, I think we let them sit for like three weeks. And it's just like a fresh yeast. We used um, uh, the White Lab is a high-gravity high gravity yeast um but yep. that didn't play out so um but i was wondering we, we haven't tried any like wine yeast or like champagne yeast or anything like that so i was just trying to get some advice for the next step on that process so when you went to the tank at 13 too, i assume bright tank and you spun it put yeast and sugar in the into the beer uh so we did this on we did this on a, on a pilot scale so we took we racked off into like a uh, into like a corny keg and sure. dosed like, were we dosed able, like one gallon amount were you able to discern your starting co2 level uh, no, we didn't analyze that. So, right. 
So um, when you wrote the calculation to carbonate that, do you know what you, what level you guys started at, volumes of CO2 or otherwise? What what sort of uh, we're targeting we're we're, we're targeting um, two and a half volumes all the way right. up to I think we target two two point seven five was the high end of what we and, targeted. And so there's a delta in there that you guys would have had to have a starting CO two number. Do you know what that might have been? Uh, I think I used whatever um, is the suggested calculator. Um, I use the I use the calculator off I think like Northern Brewer or something like that for as okay. starting CO two volume. So there's the sense in brewing that that if you do a primary fermentation, you should have a beer that has a residual volume of CO2 of 1 to 1.2, even as high as potentially 1.5 if you were to bung it. But we found that most of the barrel beers that have gone through some extended aging, specifically in spirit barrels, um, 0.5, 0.6 volumes of CO2, you know, all the way down to 0.2. So that starting okay. number is pretty pretty important, and that's one of the things that – we picked up, you know, a Gehalt meter, and we were able to really move the beer from the barrel to a bright tank and get a, a real true number as to where we started. Um, we like to move the beer from barrel to the bright tank and then gas the beer to a volume five so that our delta is only about a volume um, at finish that we need to find through the re-fermentation. Um, we'd like to go even higher. We'd like to be at about 1.8 volumes. Um, our packaging line in the past hasn't been able to handle that. So knowing where you start, I mean, knowing where you want to finish is a very simple one, but knowing where you're actually starting is pretty damn important because the work that the yeast has to do, the more work that you're asking it to do, if you only need a half a percent or a half a Play-Doh versus a full Play-Doh, that delta in between is pretty important. So uh, I, would, I would stress to figure out somehow how to stabilize the bottom end of it and to bring it up to a, a level that's more manageable. If you needed to go a Play-Doh and a half from one to two and a half, you've got a you you know volumes of CO two. You've got quite a bit of work for that yeast you're asking it to do, and it may never get there. Excellent that you're doing it on a pilot scale, though. First, you know that's that's good, and then yeah, your advice there, Tommy, with the long barrel aging process, you're going to get a much lower starting CO two volume. But uh, you know the the Northern Brewer calculator is good. I think it is calculating off of kind of a more traditional primary fermentation so you're you know crashing a tank and all that and there's a lot more residual co2 because it just finished fermenting rather than the long barrel aging process but yeah, I'd, I'd experiment with some higher um higher dosing rates uh some some different types of yeast uh, definitely i would dive into some wine yeast that are alcohol and and even low ph tolerance i mean a lot of uh burn barrel beers their ph will be a little bit lower than your typical beer but uh great question. my last my last piece of advice would be to take your beer, put it in the pilot system, you know, put your beer on CO2 for a week with a sort of a head pressure or, or shake it and try to get to that 1.5 to, to 1.8 and and see what happens when you minimize the delta because the delta is where the, the error comes into play. And if you can start at 1.5 and get to 2.2, you're only asking the yeast to go 0.7 volumes of CO2, which is a lot lower than, a, you know, a volume and a half. And it doesn't have to work as hard to go that far. And it's a it's a massive, important part of the process. Absolutely. Good luck, Josh. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Um, so, Tommy, we're running out of time. Uh, I want to – I wish I had, you know, space for about 10 more questions that I have on my list. But I suspect I know which one is coming. I'm going to ask you the one that I have to end on, which is what do you think the biggest mistake in sour beer making is? Uh, that's a good one. Um, I think that for me, the, the biggest mistake is that most people don't truly understand. I guess I'm going to say this and probably get crucified for it. I think there's a lot of people out there that are attempting to make sour beer that, that don't understand how, 
how it behaves. And just because you can make beer sour doesn't mean you understand the components, the the affectation, the way things behave. Uh, you know, it's it's an art, and knowing what you know, knowing physically what you're tasting, you know, and matching it to what's in the in the beer itself is one of the things that's probably you know central to to lambic production. Is how do you go grab things from different barrels to get the end result you want? And you know, it's easy to you know, I suppose the Garrett Oliver sort of notion of it's easy to oversalt anything you want. You know, just grab the salt and shake it. Um, it's easy to over acid any beer if you have heavy acids to begin with. But finding that delicacy and that delicate note is, the, you know, that's the complexity of this kind of stuff. And I think we've only just as sort of American craft brewers, and there's a lot of people dabbling in sour beer these days, you know, especially with all this kettle souring going on, uh, truly understanding when something's right and when something's wrong. Um, God, when, they, when they're right, they're, they're brilliant. When they're wrong, they're awful. Absolutely. An excellent advice from a guy who's been doing it for over 15 years, and he's got dozens of medals to back up his bona fides uh tommy thanks so much for joining us uh while we're you know going out i want to give you a couple of plugs one reminder for people that to watch out for uh the duck duck goose 2016 release sometime in between let's call it january and december yep. <laughs> um and then you guys also did a collaboration with uh wicked weed that debuted at gabf but there's another version coming out sometime next year so we did. We actually debuted the beer. Um, it's called Ad Idem. It means of like minds. It's a, a base beer that they fermented with 100% bread at their place. We did 100% spontaneous fermentation here at the brewery. We married the two worts together, and we're sitting in stainless right now, making sure that uh, we know how their cultures want to behave long term. And we expect, if everything goes well, to bottle it in February. I'm hoping for a March release. Uh, that's all. That's all predicated on the fact that it, it has to be sort of signed off on as being ready to go. But um, both beers had peaches and just incredible, cool process of bringing beer across the country. And they're doing some really awesome stuff. And it was um, really high on our keen on our list. Next year's our 10 year anniversary, so wanted to have something for the new year that was uh, not always you know just produced here and uh, can bring some sense of what Asheville's got going on. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you guys have a lot of exciting things going on for uh, next year. You're t- I mean, unbelievable. Lost Abbey, 10 years I know, right? of incredible beer. Um, Tommy, thanks so much for your time today. It's It's been incredible. And just thanks for sharing your knowledge and experience that you've accumulated over the last, I don't know, decade and a half. I look forward to another conversation, guys. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Tommy. Cheers. All right. Wow. We yeah, a lot more to talk to with Tommy for yeah. sure. Got to get him back, and well, you know, we'll squeeze some beer out of him. Unfortunately, a couple emails came in during the show too uh, for questions for him, and unfortunately, Tommy had a hard out here at four o'clock. Oh, you know what? That's no problem. I'll take him myself. Oh, and I'll do you know a Tommy impression, and uh, we're about to do another hour. Uh, just just questions. Yeah, you want to maybe end the and I mean, as long as we're on the Tommy show, you want to end the uh, the uh, show with your I'll best. Ask. Um, answer in the form of Tommy yeah, to I'll Brandon Fender's question. Uh, Brandon's at Good Beer Store in Santa Ana, down in Orange County. Yeah, uh, he asks some of your your uh, Brett conditioned beers. Your your best practices for adding Brett. Uh, he's asking about adding it to a farmhouse. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think, Tommy? Wow. Well, 
Here, how about this? Like, when to add Brett? What strains? Uh, but you bottle condition with Brett? You don't. You just do primary, right? We don't. We have Brett in all of our beers, though. So yeah. I know that just through research of the show, uh, Tommy's got three Brett strains going. He may have more now, you know, during his experimentation. But originally at Solana Beach, he had... Uh, I had. I Excuse me. I had mm-hmm. uh, Brett C, uh, Brett B, and Anomalous? Or no, Anomalous, Lambicus, and Clausini. I think Anomalous and Brooks are kind of referred as the same thing. Uh, I may be totally wrong about that, but uh, <laughs> now I'm fading out of the Tommy expert range <laughs> and back into Jay. Just I have no idea what's going on range. Uh, but he, he maintained them all in three corny kegs and uh, added them. He fed them regularly. Um, and he would do hundred percent fermentations. He's at them in the secondary, uh, pretty much any time when you add a mixed culture with PDO and most of the time with lacto, you want it in there to be able to clean up any of the off layers that the bacteria might create. So, uh, that's my best shot at that. That's my, right. uh, that's my Tommy answer. Hey, uh, Tommy, can you send me some beers, man? I would really like to have, uh, you know, yes, I will send you some beers. beers. Oh, yeah. great. You know, we have, uh, Kevin who uh, runs the the place that we're at, which I cannot mention by name until next episode, oh, two so episodes close. from now. Uh, apparently, there's some red poppy kicking around. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh. So I guess we should open that. Okay, we probably... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. We'll open that maybe during the Q&A. Who knows? Um, but yeah, thanks to our guest, Tommy. Uh, big thanks to our, uh, our great sponsor of this show, the Wine and Hop Shop. They're at wineandhop.com. They're carrying, as you know, if you've been listening to the last few shows, Omega Yeast and Giga Yeast. We just got some Giga Yeast. We're doing a batch uh, next week with their Saison blend and their Brett Brooks blend. Nice. It should be pretty, pretty sexy beer. Um, but yeah, go check them out. All BN listeners get a flat $8 shipping rate on orders under 50 pounds. So great for yeast and bacteria. Just enter BN shipping in the nose field of the shopping cart. And the discount's going to be taken out after checkout. That's the Wine and Hop shop at wineandhop.com. Nailed it. Boom. Uh, yeah, so that was a great show with Tommy. Uh, next time we'll have him on. We're going to have him back on for sure. And we'll get some uh, Lost Abbey beers. Yeah, actually, let's go open one of those bottles for the next Q&A show. Let's do let's it. Do we'll it. be right back with a new episode of The Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Mm-hmm.